Father, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for the gift of your mercy, the gift of your grace, how you've brought us together, how you're growing us in Jesus, and how we are again reminded morning by morning of our desperate need for him. And we pray that you meet us there this morning, that your word would be instructive to us, encouraging to us, and that we'd walk away loving him more and prizing him more above all the little things that nip at our heels, call themselves gods, but are really our own imaginations and wants. We pray for those down in Houston. We pray that, um, that you would be in and among them and that your uh, gospel would go forward and be uh, a light to those who need it, that the church would rise up and be of service down there. We pray for the needs of those in our own class that um, are going through some tough things. I pray that your comfort and your peace would be upon hearts that need it and um, that you would use us to be an encouragement and a support for those who are hurting and anxious and struggling. And for those who are um, here this morning who who need to hear from you, I pray that, that that is done here and also in the main service and that you are glorified in our discussion this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Acts 17. Oh, so close to Athens, but not quite. Acts 17. For, starting in verse 1. Last time we saw Paul and Silas leaving Philippi. Uh, why? Why would they leave? Well, just by way of review. They were there. They were having a good time. Things were happening. Why would they leave? They were in prison. Okay, they, they had a good run. There was a church that was starting. They were there for a while. And then they had opposition. Right? And the opposition came from a miracle that happened whenever Paul, greatly annoyed, cast out a demon from a girl who kept taunting them as they was walking through the thing. A miracle by annoyance. I don't, I, you know, how do you deal with that? But there it is. And so the guys lost money because this girl was no longer used uh, to tell fortunes. And so they were thrown in prison. They were beaten with rods. Not necessarily in that order. And then um, the Philippian jailer is converted through means of an earthquake, which is always, always exciting. Um, and his entire family. And they believed and were converted. And then the leaders of the place said, let them go. Uh, and, and Paul made a point of saying what? No, 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 no. Not so fast, right? Why? We're Roman citizens. We're Roman citizens. And you have shamed us and held an unlawful punishment when we should have, held a when we should have had a trial. We haven't been formally convicted of anything. And so in a point to uh, kind of set the tone for the young church that was there in Philippi so that the leaders would not um, be able to say, oh, they're associates of those criminals we threw in prison, they had them publicly come in and uh, apologize for the way that they had treated them. Nevertheless, they asked them to leave, and so Paul and Silas take the slow train out of Philippi. They go to Lydia's house, kind of encourage the church, and then they... Um, and then they go on their merry way. So, um, 
They travel about 100 miles to a major seaport at Thessalonica. And it's named after the stepsister of Alexander the Great, for whatever reason. Uh, it's a huge city. Um, it's a second large, still is, the second largest city in Greece. Um, it's, it, the ancient city, of course, lies beneath uh, modern buildings, and it's kind of difficult to ex excavate it whenever you know the bank of Thessalonica is sitting on top of it. So we haven't gotten a whole lot of archaeological information uh, directly. But uh, when the Romans took over Macedonia, they eventually made Thessalonica uh, the seat of government for that whole Macedonian region. So it's a big town, important city. Uh, and as a reward for siding with Antony and Octavian in the Battle of Philippi, remember we talked about that when we first got into Philippi, it was given the status of a free city. Not just a colony, but a free city, which is even greater. They have local government autonomy. And so the language that you see Luke using about the leadership in Thessalonica reflects that of Greek government. He uses terms that are borrowed from the way they talk about their leaders. And so it's, of course, confirms the authenticity of, of Luke's um, history here. Um, it's thought that Paul's intention was to come to Thessalonica, big town, set up shop, get a small congregation going, and then move outward to other areas, other, other places. That's what he did, did in, that's what he's going to do in Corinth, and that's what he's going to do in Ephesus. But here it doesn't work out so well. There's some there's a little snag. So let's look at verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apoll Apollonia, sorry, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in as was his custom and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. Let's stop there. So Luke's very generous with the details here. Right? <laughs> as always. Where does he start? Where's that? By way of review, why would he start there? What have we what have we discovered? It's kind of his MO when he comes to a place where there's a Jewish influence, he goes and teaches at the synagogue. Okay. And Christ told him, you know, the Jews first and the Gentiles. Okay. Well yeah, sorta. Of. why why though? I mean, if you're going into a new town, why go to the synagogue if you're a Jew? Well it's a general place of worship. Okay. God-fearing right. God Greeks are there as well, right? you got two things. One, they're familiar with the Scriptures. And so they're very um, open. Well, open. They're, they have a point of reference, which he goes to here. And the reason I draw this out is because we're about to get to, uh, to Athens. And you see a radical shift with Paul in how he approaches sharing the Gospel in Athens versus how he does it here. What is he doing here? Showing them the scriptures they already know in a different context. Right. The scriptures they already know in a different context. And what specifically does Luke recount? He's summarizing what he's doing. What is he saying he's doing? Where is he pulling this line of reasoning from? He reasoned with from the scriptures. Right? 
Where's he getting this line of reasoning? I mean, they have the scriptures. They're not seeing this. Where's Paul getting it? Jesus, specifically where? Well, he did it with yes. the, the guys on the way to the maze. Exactly. Exactly. If you go to Luke... Psalms and the prophets, he, he showed them himself, he says. If you go to Luke 24, 26 and 27, he, he, you remember after the crucifixion, and he is raised, but it's kind of still not known a whole lot, these guys, disciples from Jerusalem, are going to Emmaus. Do you remember this story? Yes? Yes. Okay. It's, we didn't go through Luke, so I, you know. Um, so they're walking on the road, and they're sad, and they're downcast, and Jesus is kind of walking up behind them, and they don't, they don't recognize him. And he says, uh, why are you sad? What are you, what's the deal? Are you, are you clueless, they say? Are you, are you a visitor here? You didn't, don't you know about what's happened? And they tell him all the events, because it's news to him, you know, all the events that have happened. And he says, don't you realize that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to be raised again? And then Luke, uh, Luke tells in the gospel that Jesus tells them, talks with them, gives them a, a great theology lesson on all the things that Scripture, from beginning with Moses, he says, tells them all, all the, the Scriptures that pertain to himself or regarding the Messiah. And so from that, and then he also does the same thing with the disciples later on as he's with them for 40 days before he ascends. He instructs them, look at the scriptures, look at the scriptures. This is, and, and Paul talks like this in 1 Corinthians 15, doesn't he? It's the gospel that I, I uh, first relayed to you that Christ uh, uh, lived and was dead and was buried according to the scriptures and rose again according to the scriptures. He, he does this whole thing in the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15. Some of the, um, some of the, I, I guess, the language that he uses here is kind of interesting. He's explaining and proving. Is that a fee, I just feel it thing? The language he's using is very logical. It's persuasive speech. I mean, I had a debate this week. I, my argument to her was all conversation, all communication is persuasive in some way. She's like, hello is persuasive. Yes, it's persuasive. Because when you say hello, you're either communicating, I care about you and I'm greeting you, or you're doing it in your tone of hello. I mean, you can, all of communication is persuasive. But doing it this way, he's, he's doing it logically from the basis of the scriptures. That's their connection point. That's their ultimate authority. And they, have, they share this ultimate authority, and so there's that contact place there. Why was it necessary, then, for Jesus to rise from the dead? Why was it necessary for the Christ to rise from the dead? That's the argument he's making. It's necessary. What does that imply, number one? Number two, why is it necessary? For him to rise from the dead, he first had to what? Die. Die. So that's why he says he suffered and necessary for him to rise from the dead. So why is, it, why is he saying that's necessary? What's necessary about that? Proves that he's God has power over death. Based on what? Scriptures. The scriptures. Yeah. If he didn't rise from the dead according to the scriptures, then the scriptures are broken. <laughs> and our ultimate authority together that we share means nothing. So he's, all of it depends on the resurrection. If the resurrection doesn't happen, 
you got nothing. Um, Psalm 16.10, maybe this is some of the stuff that he used. I know it's used elsewhere. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. A messianic psalm. Peter used this argument in uh, his first sermon in chapter 2 of Acts. Isaiah 53, 52.13, 53.12. Just a right place to talk about the Messiah and who he is and what he's done and, and, and how Jesus fits the description there. The suffering servant psalms. In verse 10 of Isaiah 53, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, what is involved in making an offering for guilt? A sacrifice, a death, right? When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Well, that's an odd statement to make. When the soul has made an offering for guilt, the soul dies. And what? He sees his offspring? There's a, there is an implication there that he is going to live. In fact, he goes on to say, he shall prolong his days. But I thought his soul was an, off, an offering. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Hosea 6, 1 through 2. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days... He will revive us. On the third day, He will raise us up that we may live before Him. Why does He say we, us, there? Hosea, talking plural. I mean, it sounds like Jesus. Why would He say we and us? Buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in the We're with Him, right? The prophecy of Jesus is not just about one man. He's doing it as a representative for a people. So this is the kind of argumentation, I'm doing very briefly, this is the kind of argumentation that Paul would be using in the synagogue from the Old Testament, from the Scriptures. He appealed to their reason and sought to persuade them with scriptural demonstrations. Um, that the Scriptures point to the suffering of the Christ, Luke points out in his gospel, he points out again and again in Acts, all the sermons, the, the lengthy sermons that we have in Acts, have this argumentation to them, mostly. Except for the one in Athens, and we'll get to that next time, maybe. Um, the servant psalms of Isaiah make up a major portion of these proofs, and it was summarized by Paul in, um, in 1 Corinthians 15, which we already talked about. Alright, so this is the argumentation he's using. Christ had to suffer, had to die, had to be raised. What's the response? And what's the comparative language that Luke uses among these groups? What's the response? Some were persuaded. Because that happens. Some were persuaded. What else does he say? And a great many. Some were a great many. That's coming. A great many devout Greeks. And some of the leading women who would be included in the devout Greeks. Not a few. But that's part of the Greeks. Comparatively speaking, if we were going to put it on a scale, how many Jews, how many Greeks? More Greeks than Jews. More Greeks than Jews. And it seems like a lot. Seems like a lot. So we have uh, some, some think that it wasn't just Greeks that were in the, you know, the God-fearing Greeks that were in the synagogue that were being persuaded, but that Paul was doing his stuff in the synagogue um, for three consecutive Sabbaths. And also, 
uh, not neglect. He's also continuing to uh, do his evangelism among Gentiles as well. So that, you know, he's doing this stuff on the Sabbath with the Jews, and he's continuing to do because the mission is to the Gentiles. I mean, that's why he's commissioned. So that's where he starts, and then he continues to go. And this is being very fruitful. He's having great success here among the Greeks and among the Jews. Um, and he does include uh, women in leadership, leading women. Uh, in Macedonia, women, uh, we see again and again in, in, in Acts, they had considerable social and civic influence. We saw that with Lydia. All right. Good thing going. We hit verse 5. Cue music. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. They posted bond. Who is opposing Paul here? We'll start with that. Who is opposing him? What does it say? Jews. Jews. Now, when Luke uses Jews that way, uh, what is he talking about? Is he talking about the average guy? Pharisees. He's talking about the leaders, maybe Pharisees, maybe we don't know what, what party they're from, but, but the leadership. And what does it say? What does he attribute to their opposition? What does he say? Jealous. Of what? Of what? They're speaking from a place of authority, and that's what, that's what these individuals are used to having. They're used to the power, and they're used to the influence. Okay. Here comes these guys coming in from the outside. These yahoos from Philippi, yeah. They're coming in from the outside. They're reasoning, and what, what, would be the, what should be the response of those who are not believing? They could shut it down, right? In what way? How could they shut it down? Proving it wrong by also reasoning from the scriptures. Do you get the sense that maybe that's not happening? That maybe they tried a little of this? Well, when you get back to the quarter in an argument, you just start dismissing the literally attacker. So you have an inability to articulate an opposing view persuasively. <laughs> So, of course, the only way to do that is to crush it militarily, right? Because <laughs> the victors write history. The victors write history. Um, I find it very ironic. Where do the Jews go to get their, um, their force? Wicked of the rabble. The rabble. The wicked of the rabble. From rabble to reigning or something. For the what? For the class name, from rabble to reigning. Maybe, maybe that's uh, I got to come up with a alliteration. Yeah, I like rabble, not rabble. Does that mean mob? Rabble actually is an interesting word that's used here by 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 Luke, and I, I don't know why he's. It means lowbred, lowborn. The the 
the riffraff class. So these are rabble. And you have these Jews who are leaders, who are sons of Abraham. And where do they turn for help? The, the, these worthless men that hang around the market looking for a, a, a fight to be paid to fight. So they get the thugs off the street. Basically, uh, you know, again, it's... Probably the easiest one to tie a riot with. Probably. Guys, I can pay. Here's a couple coins to go make a riot. That's right. <laughs> that doesn't happen today. Um, <laughs> so, so you have, basically, the noble Jews acting very ignobly. Is that the word, ignoble? Rabbly? Rabblish? So they're pairing, they're partnering with, they're taking on the characteristics of ill-bred, is the way Luke talks about this. These rabble, this rabble. Um, isn't it interesting that jealousy provokes the strangest associations? Here, the Jews are offended because of the influence of the gospel among Gentiles and their own belief that Paul is teaching blasphemy. I mean, that's, that's usually the response. He's teaching blasphemy. Christ is God. Jesus is God. However, they see nothing wrong with getting thugs, paid clubs, paid rioters, these ill-bred, coarse people, to stir up a mob in order to deal with Paul and Silas. They see nothing wrong with that. That's exactly that's where they go. Um, it's much easier to shut them down through writing than it is through good argumentation. I'm so glad we're beyond that. If you have to shut someone down through force, you've lost the argument. However, we, gotta, we can't assume that it's always the Jews that oppose Paul and Silas this way. I mean, who, who's doing this now? Who is it moved to? Who's the mob consisting of now? <clears throat> Not just Jews. A city uproar, and mostly Gentiles, right? So now the Gentiles are, are, are doing it. So it's pretty equal between the two groups in chapters 16 through 19. Jews opposing and Gentiles opposing. We see that, see that happen. Um, so the Jews succeed in arousing the mob. Does this scene remind you of anything? wicked men using anger as an appropriate outlet. Like, so it just shows the fallenness, nothing new under the sun in Ecclesiastes, and I think you can make it about whatever issue, but if you go to wicked men and it allows an anger outburst, it's like, exact, I mean, so I'm not comparing it to scripture, I just see it like... No, it's, it's, but it is compared, because everything is theological, <laughs> and persuasive. Everything is theological. <laughs> um, it's, it's the heart of man, again. I was thinking more older, but it applies here too. It's the same thing. It's the same fallen heart. I was thinking Sodom and Gomorrah. Because what are they doing? Where do they go? Jason's house. They go to the, the place where Paul and Silas have been boarding. Jason apparently is a Jewish convert. Jason is a name that many Jews took on in the diaspora out in the, in the Greek area. They go to his house. A mob with clubs and maybe some knives and torches and pitchforks and hay sticking out of their teeth. What do they say? Bring us the men. Right? Does that sound familiar? You harbored them. You harbored them. 
You're as guilty as they are. Guilty of what? Bring us the men. Bring them out. Well, since they're not there, apparently they got word of this mob uprising beforehand, so they were um, secreted away. But they grabbed Jason and a couple other guys that are there and used them as Paul's proxy. Um, all right. So Jason is as good a person on whom to vent their wrath as any. And so they drag him before the politarchs or officials. Again, that's the Greek borrowed phrase there of the, of, the, um, of the leadership. What are the charges? I see three. What are the charges here? What does that mean? What ca- is there a statute? Thou shalt not turn the world upside down. What does that mean? <laughs> disorderly conduct. Because mobs are able to enforce disorderly conduct charges. What's the, what's the accusation here? They're troublemakers. They're troublemakers. They've incited us by their hate speech, by their Jewishness. By, you know, they've, got the, they've got the Jews in an uproar because they've said trigger words to them or something. I don't know. They're, they're troublemakers. The word here in Greek can mean uh, stir up sedition, someone who is a political agitator. And that may be in view here when you read the third charge. What's the second charge? That's the third charge. What's the second charge? Jason is what? That's the charge. He's received them. He's harboring troublemakers. Do you, does that sound like a substantive charge? And they don't even have evidence because he wasn't there when he got the year right. It's it's not it's what is this? Childish. Okay, I'll grant that. They're playing rather than logical argument, they're trying to play emotional. They're playing emotional arguments. They might they make these wild assumptions, these wild accusations. They're troublemakers. And he's harboring troublemakers. What are we gonna do? They're agitators. What are we gonna do? There's no substantive argument here. Until we get to the third one, which is what? They're he's going against the decrees of Caesar. Saying there is another king. Saying there is another king. What are the decrees of Caesar that are talking about? What is Caesar compelling? You must worship him. You got to do what? Do you know? Do, have we gone through this? There was a there was a decree that went out Kaiser. that that Kaiser Cure yes that they would have to go a little pinch of salt, a little pinch of incense, whatever, put it on a deal and recite an oath that Caesar is Lord. Caesar is where my loyalty lies. Um, I pledge allegiance to Caesar. That's, that's, the, that's the import here. They're saying these guys are violating, they're breaching the loyalty oath to Caesar that is punishable by death. So it becomes very serious there. Um, they're acting against the decrees of Caesar. There's another king, Jesus. Now, what did Jesus say about his kingdom? It's not of this world. He looked at Pilate and said, my king was not, yes, I'm a king, but it's not this world. You shouldn't feel militarily threatened by me. 
you should feel threatened in other ways, <laughs> but you should not feel militarily threatened by me. Um, and that's what Paul and Silas have been preaching. The kingdom of Christ is not, it doesn't consist of the types of overthrow that we've seen throughout history from the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans. We, that's, not the, that's, not the wor that's not the plane he's operating in. But it's a dangerous charge because it sounds similar. If you claim that he's a king, it sounds like he's there to usurp. Um, all right, how do the magistrates respond? How do they respond? And let's compare them to, say, the leadership in Philippi. How do these guys respond? They were disturbed. They were disturbed, but what do they do? Took the money. They took a bond. Uh, the idea here is that they take a security deposit on peace. And if it gets disturbed, you lose the money. So what's the quickest way to make sure you get your money back? Shut up and be peaceful. How do you get peace? whenever they're in riot over Paul and Silas. They get them out of town, right? In order to get the security money back, you've got to ensure peace. And so the way to do that is to get Paul and Silas out of town. Uh, the leaders seem to show res some restraint and, and, and discretion here. I mean, it, they just kind of take it, say, hey, we don't want any more mess. Just get them out of here. They, the they didn't beat them. They want the riot gone. Exactly, because they're about law and order. They're, they're, they didn't beat them. They didn't throw them in prison. But ultimately what they do is, um, is Paul and Silas have to go. Paul talks about this in 1 Thessalonians 2.18. He says, Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. He did it through this rabble that stirred up the crowd, this ill-bred, these coarse people that Luke calls um, those in Thessalonica. So then they go on their merry way um, in verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, surprise, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews, well, we'll stop there. We'll start with what's going on and then we'll, we'll, we'll have the Jews come in and ruin it all. All right. The brothers send them off by night. And when they leave, the route that they had been taking, this um, Ignatian way uh, that they had been following beforehand, uh, they, they, they take a detour here. The Ignatian Way, ultimately, some people think that Paul was making his way around and ultimately would have arrived back in Rome at the end of this early missionary journey. But here they take a detour off of that road and go to Berea, which is kind of off the beaten path. Um, their course changes, and because and, Paul often talked to the Romans of being hindered in coming to them in, in, in the letter to the Romans. So the hindrance here may have been specifically the news that Claudius, the emperor in Rome, had thrown the Jews out of Rome at this point. So it's getting, there was some political upheaval. Um, anyway, so whatever the reason, they headed off the beaten path 50 miles from Thessalonica to Berea, away from Rome. They arrive after about a three days journey by foot. And where do they go? 
Surprise. Right back in the synagogue. That's right. They're there again. Paul's there again. What's and he's probably making the same arguments that he made in Thessalonica. We're explaining and reasoning with them from the scriptures that Jesus must suffer, or the, the Messiah had to suffer and must rise again. Right? But same, same argumentation. Luke doesn't repeat it here, but, but that's just what he did. What's the difference? They're more noble. They try and combat his logic with logic by digging in to see if it's true or not. Ah. Responding with violence. Right. And he's called a noble. They're called, he calls them noble. And so the language there actually means hybrid, <laughs> tolerant, thinking. That's the comparison. Thessalonica is rabble, ill-bred. Berea, they're thinking, they're beating the text to see if this thing is true. And they're considered hybrid, noble, tolerant. In the, in the real sense of the word. They beat on the text. And notice, too, how often they're doing it. Daily. Daily. How, how often in Thessalonica? They just went to Sabbath. They just had Sabbath to Sabbath. It's kind of an oddity over three Sabbaths. And they had the world turn upside down on them. They met and searched daily. They, do their, they did their own examination of the Scriptures to see if the Scriptures really did point to the death and resurrection of the Messiah, as Paul claimed. Christianity, at its core, is a thinking man's religion. That's considered noble. Not conquering a country to impose Sharia law on it by forced conversion, that's not what we're about. We've never been about that. It's, it's calling people to use the image of God that's within them to reason and come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Christ. It, it, it's a persuasion of hearts and minds. It has nothing to do with swords. And so, um, if I... Except for the sword of the Spirit. Yes. Yes, but it still doesn't draw blood. Uh, if I, Philip, the Pope, or even the Apostle Paul claim the scriptures say something, search for yourselves. That's our duty. That's the nobility to which we've been called, to search and see if these things are so. It's not a like task. It requires work. They did it daily. They beat on the text. And I'm using that phrase. It's a phrase Martin Luther used whenever he came to uh, Romans 1.17. What does the righteousness of God mean there? He says, I beat on the text. I be, the, the, strangled out of the text what Apostle Paul meant by the righteousness of God there, how it's revealed there. Luther was intense. We don't, just take, we don't just take something at first glance and move on. We turn it over and over and over and chew on it and chew. And this is what the Psalms call for. Psalm 119, you chew on it, you think about it. To see what the implications are. Ideas have consequences. If we get it wrong, it takes us on a trajectory. We've got to be right as much as we can. Are those perceived consequences correct? Are they supported by the text? So many of these Bereans found out that Paul's claims were true, and so they believed. Many Greeks, just as in Thessalonica, many of the prominent women. And again, we can assume here that Paul didn't neglect his ministry to the Gentiles in Berea as well. And they were... They were 
Even though the synagogue was open to his message, he still was working among the Gentiles. All right. Nothing lasts forever. Look at verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. They're bird-dogging him. They're following him to the next place. Um, the Jews, the leadership in Thessalonica, is causing trouble here as well. They did the same thing here that they did there. They stir up the crowds or the general Gentile population in the city against Paul. Um, and it seems here that Paul was in particular the target, not Silas and Timothy, because Paul leaves and Silas and Timothy stay. Um, but where does he end up? Athens. That's clear that he ends up in Athens. How he gets there is a little bit of a debate. It, it did. Uh, some argue that he did a little diversionary tactic here by pretending to go by sea and then hurried uh, to Athens by the coast, trying to throw off the scent, I guess, to the guys in Thessalonica who are you know, dogging him everywhere. I don't know. That, that's a theory. It's an interesting theory. It, it's not majorly important. Um, but nevertheless, those traveling with Paul leave him there alone and return to Berea with a message uh, to uh, for Timothy and Silas to come to him there. So Paul... We're, we're ending here today. Paul is left in Athens by himself. What could go wrong? Right? We'll pick that up next week. Any questions? Any comments? Any fruit to be thrown? Athens is a good place for fishermen to be because they have the fish hatchery. Awesome. It's amazing how courageous they were to go back and follow the Right. Yeah, it didn't deter him from doing what he was supposed to do. Yeah, just go right back to the synagogue and keep right back on the same same message. Right. There's the there's the the plan that he's following, and he's trusting the organic fruit of it to be by the Holy Spirit. Not to, he can't he can't flip a switch. He just does what he's supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah, I love how it's the same gospel everywhere he goes. It's it's just the same message. It's not seeker sensitive. It's not tailor made. I mean, on one one hand, he's all things to all people, but his argumentation is the same. I like that. The message is the same. It's yeah. the Holy Spirit that does the work. You're right. It's the Holy Spirit that does the work. The message is the same. He does. We'll see next time. I, I think we're going to get to the the sermon in Acts. Um, next time, so in uh, and, and Athens next time, but he, he does change it a little bit, and the reason you will see is that there isn't this focal point of the scriptures with the, the people in Athens. They've got philosophers that they trust. That their higher authority is their own mind, their own reason, uh, and he he tags based on what they already know that God exists, that He's eternal, and that He's judging. 
And then he gives them particulars of the gospel to, to, uh, to call them to repent. It, it's, it's really interesting to me how he shifts in Athens differently. You don't see him turning your Bibles to Isaiah 53 with the, with the guys in Athens. What do you mean Isaiah? Who's Isaiah? So he, he uses another, another way. The two books that the Bible talks about, one is general revelation, the, the, the book of nature that reveals the nature of God, and the other is specific revelation which God gives through prophets. Man, holy men carry along by the Holy Spirit, as the Creed says. So um, it, it's just interesting how he does that. Any other, any other comments? I was going to say, recently I had the opportunity to share the gospel with somebody that's just never heard it. Like, did you In Tyler? No. Oh. Um, but it's just when you start talking about what you believe, it's kind of like it's insane. But it's like, <laughs> but when when you go back to the facts, like Jesus was an actual person, really lived in history, did the things that are recorded of him that can be proven historically. And like, then you're like, well, yeah, I mean, then he proved to be God because of the miracles and raising from the dead and all that. But then, like, you talk about the book of nature and say, um, like, where you look at the universe and you you have to see that there was a creator mm. but it's just hammered in so many people's heads that just evolution you know yeah and it's just sad that that's taught in school like it is it's the, the only option but yeah over over in Prague um everybody's agnostic basically yeah um they just believe in a force yeah and uh that's like you ask them you know what they believe and they're like oh I'm atheist but they're actually agnostic. Yeah, well, they don't know what they believe. <clears throat> they, yeah, they, they don't really know the difference. And blissfully so. <laughs> and, uh, right. And, uh, yeah, it's it's just that that's just been ingrained in them. Yeah. You know, so to to use the scriptures doesn't make sense to them yeah. at all. Yeah. Like, they don't believe in any books like that. So right. They just believe in, the, in their own thinking. So you have to... The, the way that you approach it when sharing the gospel with them is just completely different. Yeah. Completely different than approaching it like in China. China, it's completely different. Um, they, like lots of people are really open to the gospel. They just kind of view Christianity and Jesus as Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. And they just, they don't know. <laughs> they don't know any better. That's just what they see in pop culture in right. the U.S. Right, right. I would assume that... Jesus that, just gives you what you want. I would assume that evangelizing in China would be very similar to evangelizing in, in certain parts of Tyler. Yeah, yeah. That. Um, interesting. That's, that's one of the hard things about evangelizing to really, really brilliant people. Mm-hmm. Um, like Prague, everybody's super smart. Mm-hmm. Like, way smarter than me. Um, but then... Also, <clears throat> like going to like a remote tribe is completely different. You have yeah, to approach it way different. I, they're not as. I love the stories of missionaries <laughs> that try to do what you're talking about with those remote tribes of trying to describe right. biblical passages using their stuff. yeah with their with their language and trying to to. It's this, but not quite. How do we distinguish it? And it's 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 a challenge. Right. It's a challenge. And when you remember that we're all created in Mago, how do you say Mago Deo? In the image of God. Yeah, yeah. That we all have that in us to like, why are we here? Where do we come from? Mm-hmm. What's our purpose? Those ultimate questions are all the same. Yeah. yeah. I, I think for me, the light switch went off whenever I 
started thinking about the gospel as being illogical. Mm-hmm. Because it actually is illogical <laughs> that a man is also God and died and rose from the grave because that is supernatural. Mm-hmm. So once you finally realize, like, it's very logical, but also completely illogical at the same time um, from what we see in our everyday lives. Like, right. You know, I've, I've never seen somebody being risen from the grave. Or yeah. But <clears throat> just understanding, like, I don't know how that happened mm-hmm. <laughs> other than he's got and and that we have four five historical documents right that testify oh, to it i mean so you're right it is illogical from a standpoint of right. matter motion and chance yes it's not illogical from the biblical worldview in fact it's eminently consistent and and whatever and that's and i think that's the fundamental issue we see with paul in athens yeah the worldview's different in a synagogue versus among the Stoic philosophers and the Epicurean philosophers. So he, he attacks it from a different standpoint. Yeah. So you're exactly right. It, and it comes out, who is this babbler? You know, they, I'm already teaching next week. It, who is this babbler? It's the same kind of, yeah. it, it, that doesn't make sense to me. Right. So it, how do you, which again, um, lends itself to why uh, Paul teaches and right. we believe and I trust that it's God that changes the heart, God that opens the eyes, right. because in our own trapped worldviews, we're not going to see that because we love our sin. We don't want to break out of, right. I'm all that. I'm all matter, motion, and chance, and I determine my own destiny. That's Which is why I really like the phrasing, turn the world down. Exactly. Because that's what they needed. Yeah. They didn't want it. Right. We like the world right side up. Please leave us alone. Yeah. Which is a challenge to us. Are we turning the world upside down? You know, are, are, are we faithful to the gospel? Are we faithful to being proclaimers of this illogical system in their worldview that it would turn the world upside down? Um, not to agitate, because that's not what we're about, but to challenge the set heart in sin that is in rebellion against God. Are we bold enough to do that? Paul did the same. He's gone now. Paul did the same thing every time, regardless of the consequences. Gentile, reason the scriptures. Let the, let the Jews stir up the Gentiles. Time to leave. Or if I wait too long, I get thrown in prison. You know, one of the two. Same pattern every time. God gives the increase. I'm going to water. I'm going to plant. God gives the increase. I suffer what I suffer. Do we have that? Do we have that? the willingness to turn the world upside down at, at whatever cost. I pray that we do. Speaking of pray, let's pray. What a challenge, Father, it is to us to lay aside our personal well-being, our um, comfort zones, our, uh, our willingness to be uh, uh, well, our desire to be held in high esteem rather than as troublemakers by simply sharing the gospel. Uh, would you do a work in our hearts, I pray, continue to work in us that we would be driven to make Jesus known for who he is, not sugarcoat it, not try to, to soften the blow, 
but um, at the same time not be obstacles ourselves. The gospel is offensive enough without us adding to it. So I pray that you give us wisdom on how to do that, how to do that well. And would you be so kind as to be as to as to give us fruit in that effort that we would see people with their eyes opened their hearts changed i pray father that it would start within our own families that we would be bold there um, and loving there to reason and to explain not to browbeat and to try to overpower by force Thank you that your word is true. We can trust it. And be confident in explaining it, even if the other person is smarter than us. In you, in Christ, um, resides all the riches of understanding, knowledge, and wisdom. And we thank you for that, and that we are in him. Uh, we pray for the next service, that your word would be spoken, that we would be... Um, pushed to grow a little bit more like Jesus through what Philip shares with us this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I guess the lesson is uh, be noble, don't be rabble.